welcome back. We're going to pick up with part two of the creative process podcast that ran a little bit longer. Uh, we are recording this one the same night we recorded the other one. Uh, so we are still in week 17 of quarantine and Mario is still with us as our guest on this podcast. And Jake is getting beverages. Which is <laughs> normal seltzers, not anything else. Uh-huh. Mm. Uh, and I think we all decided that, I think what we came to in part one was a good conclusion, thought to come to. But I would actually like to talk about um, how Mario approaches a project to, like, how we approach project to kind of see the different approaches and thought patterns he has with his um, self-taught training i guess and our regimented education training words real bad with them sounds good sounds good to me yeah sounds good to me yep cool beans uh mario do you want to start talking about one of your projects or do you want one of us to start or oh you guys can start i'll I'll, let me ponder this a little bit okay so then i'm gonna target mazio with this one Ooh. i'm gonna say Mazio, you are currently working on a board game, or you have been working on a board game before COVID struck. I am still working uh, on a board game. Okay, good. Um, this is your first board game that you set out to make that you've actually like did a process for, or sat down with other people. Second? Yeah. Okay. So how did you approach this board game, or your first board game, actually? I feel like the first one, and then what you've learned from it for the second one would be a nice, oh, God. interesting thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, so the first, the first game I set out to do is actually a pen and paper RPG and it was a total disaster fire failure. Um, is that the one you worked with outside? Nope. Okay. Unrelated. Gotcha. Um, this is actually my senior project at Drexel and what I, what I learned was that, uh, Scope is important, and I, oh, and I had none, and it ran wild, and it was a disaster. Um. So, how did you like? How did you approach it? What was the first thing that came into your head? What did you think was the first thing you had to do? Or so, so here's the, the with that game or the the game that is actually like ready to go to Kickstarter. Uh, whatever you think is more entertaining for this podcast conversation. So. So I uh, <laughs> I tend to start concept first with a game. Um, so for the first game, the game was called Ordinary People, and basically it was akin... Well, this is before Second Life came out, I think. At least I wasn't aware of it at the time. But it was like Second Life, the game, where like you would be like an accountant or the Pope, right? That's, that's how vague this thing was, right? And the idea was that you could do weird stuff in it. But there was no, like, preternatural, like, you're not, like, a mage or anything. And I never got, I got that idea down, and I got character creation down, and got completely quagmired in the construct of a polyhedral die set, and the challenges that that presents to somebody who, who just never considered permutations on that before. Um, and the game, the game basically stalled there. Uh, after like 200 hours worth of like work, about a hundred of it on me trying to reinvent the wheel 
um, rather than like you know borrowing heavily, uh, it is it's just crapped out. Um, the second game started. Uh, the second game is called Grim Park, and it well it should have gone to Kickstarter uh, four months ago, but the quarantine hit, so it will now probably not go to Kickstarter till twenty twenty one or twenty twenty two. And a friend came to me and was like, "I think we should make an RTS board game," and we started working through that. And the that's that's the core of the process. I start off with that idea where it's like, I want to make an RPG where I can go off the rails, but like I'm the Pope and all the other people <laughs> playing are cardinals, or I'm like, you know, I live in a development and everyone else lives in the same development and the story gets weirder from there and we see how far we can take it, right? Um mm-hmm. versus this. Now, when I approach a board game, I kind of approach it from the perspective of here's a world that I've built that I want to make a board game out of, and I'm going to slice off. What parts of this world do I think are ripe to be sliced off and developed into games that, uh, uh, developed into games using specific mechanics that reflect that synergy? Which is to say, like, I've learned scope, and I've also learned, um, that building the world onto the game, sort of grafting a skin onto it, which is what happened with Grim Park. We built the world around the concept of uh, approximating a real-time strategy game in an analog environment. Um, we're interesting, but there's that whole six months of basically dead play testing that I've kind of come to the conclusion should you it, it, it it's it's mental process of thinking through the game and I think I found a way around that part of that process that's not as important to what I was doing. Does that help? I feel like I taught for 10 hours. I feel like what I heard was you still approach it from world building, story, narrative first, piece out what we need, attach mechanics to it. Yeah. Which is a valid valid process. But I think that comes from your background right that we talked about last time extensively in the part in part one right was yeah. you always approach it from the narrative that's your education that's what you have a passion for well, and so but i think more importantly in this it's my it's my education because it's how i see the world like right i figured out that's how i see the world when i was in, in my undergrad and i went back to graduate school to further that understanding mm-hmm. i was in a marketing department and um just could not could not get my point of view across and watched bad decisions and questionable decisions happening because people would cut out parts to the narrative of that of a marketing campaign and I couldn't at you know 24 explain that where it's like well you, you cut out all the important stuff that's why this doesn't work right mm-hmm. um and I sort of, I actually call it American Kung Fu in my head. I don't know if that makes sense or it's even an okay term in 2020. But it's like, I see the world through story and all of my training is through story. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter um, whether I'm talking to you about like the logistics of getting children on and off of buses efficiently or like the Campbell cycle embedded in Lord of the Rings. Right? right. Because that's the lens through which I see the world. It almost seems to me like that's also the lens which you apply to a genre. Like you mentioned that um, your friend brought you the idea for an RTS board game and then you sort of applied 
yourself to that genre and then figured out what it was going to be. And the first thing you said about your uh, pen and paper RPG was that it was a pen and paper RPG. Yes. Like it's not necessarily starting from character or starting from plot. It's starting from genre. Yes. Which is kind of interesting because it's super different than how I go about it. Well, I think that's what he said for the first one. And then the second one, he said, I had this world. No. I specifically said the opposite. We grafted the world onto it. Now I approach it world first. There you go. Okay. I thought you mentioned something. Okay. Yeah, I approach it world first, but so that's... Uh, I'll just, I guess I'll just keep talking, and I apologize to everybody. That's fine. No, dude. Um, that was mostly to the listeners. Um, <laughs> all, all of you. I'm assuming it's Fuck. less than 10. Um, that, I'm hurt. No, the, the, the process shifted because in the, in the process of making the second game, I became friends with the artist... And we started synergize. We we started working together in a completely different way. The person that was the catalyst fell off. Figured out making games wasn't 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 the thing that person wanted to do with their time, and moved on. And the artist and I started like looking at the world differently. And like now we're not really developing game. We're we're not really developing a game necessarily. She and I are not working at that company anymore. We're doing something entirely different. Um, because she's very good at visual art and character art, and I'm very good at words. And uh-huh. that sort of thing is coming into play. I'm good at mechanics when you're talking about board games. But that's because I've been doing it for so long that I innately learned it. I never had formal game training at all. So, But so when you approach the mechanic, you do you think of it as math, as like this needs to happen in this and like an order of events or do you picture it as here's two players playing here's how i would want the game to play this is the move like as a, as a narrative neither neither okay. i actually approach it from what i call touch which is how like okay. the game feels right when you touch the game gotcha. how does the game feel because board games are tactile so yeah. like touch is a literal sense and the same applies oh, yeah. to video games but like it's not as literal right um right when I approached something with touch, when we did the RTS game, the core value in the RTS game was everybody making all their decisions at the same time. And what is the touch on that? And we came up with a system in which everybody chose from an action pool that had its own ingrained limitations based upon which faction you were playing, and then put those actions down firmly in advance so you could utilize the action in a tactical sense but in a strategic sense you were already committed right which to me is that that feels like an rts construct yeah does that make sense yes does that answer your question i think is even perhaps more relevant yeah to an extent i'm still processing it but yes i believe it does i i think that the mechanics should reflect the world and the narrative. And I know that lots of other people see the world as mechanics first and everything else second. And that's totally valid and totally fine. I'm not, I'm not dying on that hill today. Um, but for myself, if I want you to, a lot of times when I play, a, when I play a board game, right, I play terraforming Mars, which is a great game and I'm not decrying it at all. I goodness knows I spent plenty of money on it. Um, <laughs> that functionally, at no point do I feel like a terraformer, right? I'm an amazing 
logistical bean counter who's trying to draw the best cards out of a deck while controlling victory conditions on the board until I think I have a clear enough advantage to end the game. Right? Right. At no point does that feel like a terraformer. And a huge part of that is because the action that I take to draw cards or plant a forest or make a city or put an ocean onto the surface or visit a colony are all very, very similar in terms of touch. Okay. Um, I think that helped. I think that exp- that I helped. Yeah. And me process it. And that that that's that otherwise beautiful games like ma- like Fatal Flaw, which you you probably don't even realize it the first twenty times you play it. So mm-hmm. you know, flaw is a relative term. Whereas when you play Twilight Imperium, granted that's on its fourth edition and it's been around forever. Um, at no point do I not feel like I'm in charge of a galactic empire and life is extremely complicated at all times and I can't make enemies out of everyone at the table or this is going to go bad quick. Right. So um. I have a question, Mazio. Mm-hmm. Um, so it basically goes genre world, but what comes after that? Is it story or mechanics that comes first? Um, so, <laughs> so as a normal rule, uh, I have cheated significantly at this point, and <laughs> done both, and decided which version of that I like better, and then followed that path. Because I think there's an inherent divergent problem in a game where, particularly a board game which is intended to be social, where if one of those things is going to be dominant, right? The thematics and narrative are going to be dominant, and people are going to like the game and play it for that, or the mechanics are going to be fantastic and you could have it as gray box and it wouldn't make a difference, right? So when you look at Grimfark, um, I think the mechanics of that game are strong, but I think you're ultimately playing that game because it's funny and amusing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an amusing apocalypse, essentially. And art also. Oh, what? sorry. Random person X, the artist that you work with, her art also lends itself to that. Yeah, her her art's amazing in that her regard. Her style, and, yeah. Um, and the other thing is that, that that game, when we tried to develop it, so like it's like a mid-range game in terms of complexity and length. And when we were developing it, we tried it, pushing it all the way out. It was full 4X. You could build things. You could tear things down. And it was, oh, tedious would have been a compliment um, for it. The game took easily 20 turns. Now it takes, you know way less like probably seven six is our i think our average but i think i tell most people seven so they finish in six they feel it was fast that's also a good (laughs) trick you should write that down um but yeah it's one of those things where when i when i look at it i i look at it from both perspectives and try to determine if this is a game that the artwork is going to be super fun and the mechanics are going to keep you happy or if this is a game that is 100% invested in fun characters and an interesting world and the mechanics serve that purpose and allow you to to go with it. Because I think the thing a lot of people lose sight of when you bring up the math question is, what are you doing? Like, why are you playing this? And um, the word fun usually doesn't enter into it for, for most designers that I've met. Fun is also really hard to quantify, but that is another... But you know it when you see it, like, irony. Oh, yeah. Like, 
I think you can tell via the playtest and watching people play your game whether or not they are having fun or whether or not they're like, I am finishing out this round and then I am quickly standing up from this table. I'm going to put on a fake smile and tell you your game is okay and walk away quickly. Yeah. And I've never, right? I've never had the second one happen, knock on wood. Because right. by the time I took the game public, like to the public and started playtesting it in public, um, which we didn't get enough of be- again because of quarantine, um, I was aware of the fact that this wasn't a mechanical masterpiece that I was trying to create with a couple of other people. This was 110% a case of this game is a really good way to pass a Thursday night with some buddies and some pizza. Yeah. And I I feel like, um, I think I've said this before, but I'll, I'll end up repeating it indefinitely. Like, when I write or design something, I do it to amuse myself in the hopes that other people will be amused. Because um, I started off writing comedy and couldn't write drama to save my life and then spent an exorbitant amount of time, energy, and money learning to make people sad only to figure out that people don't like you when you do that. <laughs> like, Oh, I will die on the hill against that one, but okay. But like, Yeah, Jake does play depressing narratives. But like, people might like it when you do fuel. it, but they hate it when I do it. That's fair. Um. And and I was like, oh yeah, life is really hard most of the time. I don't need to make it harder. Right. So, to so how would you? I guess we're going to summarize your process. Is it is narrative based, and you try and keep the narrative in mind when you create. I, I can. I'll, can I? Can I jump in? Yeah, go ahead. I'm bad with words. Uh, world, touch, story or mechanics, and then the other one that you didn't pick. Gotcha. A, B, C, D, E. Uh. Wait, nope, no E. Cut, cut, <laughs> cut myself not knowing how to count there. <laughs> and there's also before world genre. Ah, uh, see, I think that... <sighs> Alright, hold on. We're not gonna get on another tangent. <laughs> Because I would like Jake, who commented at the beginning of Mazio's process, where she was like, that is not at all how I would approach it, or how you think of it. Jake, how do you approach projects that are given to you? What's the first thing you think about? How do you work your way through it? This is going to be a super different answer, and I don't even know if I'm going to have like the same format. But every game that I end up trying to make um, starts as a horror game, strangely enough. Because they always end up being touchy-feely narrative sim type things. But without a doubt. Yeah, no. Every single time. And Maz, you can attest to this. Every single time I bring an idea, I'm like, hey, I want to do this thing. It's a horror game. And we've gotten to the point where now I've gotten Mazio to be the stopgate for that. Where when I bring him a horror game, he will hit me in the head with a copy of a hero, like the Hero's Journey and say, no, stop. Go back to what you do. But that's that's good. Um, yeah, no, so it always starts as a horror game. But for me, it's character first every single time. I think that's why it starts as a horror game. Like, I don't... This is kind of contrary to what I've seen from a lot of other game designers. I tend not to start with the mechanics. And honestly, that may change. Disclaimer. Like, that could be to my detriment because sometimes I'm light on the mechanic side. But... I don't start with them. I always start with the character. And then I, I try to flesh out that character's story 
And then from there, I try to flesh out that character's world. And it, you can hopefully see that this is kind of going in reverse, right? Because I'm starting this from the specific and going to the general, which means that you then have to go back and rewrite. But it's the only way that I've found that I can start. I think it always starts in horror because horror, like especially psychological horror, is really just the exploration of one character's mind. So the game that I worked on um, under Mazio in school for our workshop sessions all started with, started from a story that somebody told me about a desire that they never got to fulfill. Um, and then from there it extrapolated out. But it started from like this weird, <laughs> remember it started way back as like a exploration of a murderer's mind? Yes. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And then it turned into this like walking simulator at the very end in its final form of uh, a girl shipwrecked on an island uh, exploring the past of a family that once lived there. And through that, like coming to a realization of her own life. But yeah, it's, I, I think it, this is going to be a bit shorter than yours for sure. And I think that's because, you know, we're at different points, but I start from the specific, I go to the general and then I have to go back to the specific, but I let that story and that character flesh out. And from a mechanical side, I try to think of what would be an interesting way to explore this interesting thing about this person. And then I let the mechanics come out of that. Do, hopefully that makes sense and kind of answers yeah, the question. Yeah. Yeah. Sense. Yeah, for sure. So um, can, I, can I ask a different sort of question here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you ever considered trying to decide which psychological aspect of the character you're trying to examine? Before, like, before. What do you mean? So, like, you, you said that you start with horror because you want to examine the psycho the psychology because you, your brain wants you functionally need to examine the psychology of one character, right? Yeah. So, deciding on what type of that, like, what part yeah, of that yeah. character I want to examine yeah. before should that be a step in your process? Having... Probably, yeah. I think this kind of ties into what I really want to do in games. Um, like everything that I try to do when I'm making a game is about making a character that I feel could be like a real person and like a beloved character. That's like the number one thing that I really want to accomplish. And the games that I really love and I'm inspired by do that well. So I try to come at it from a more well-rounded perspective of like, let's build this character. And then what is the interesting thing about this person? what naturally developed through the writing. And like with the game that I worked on with you, which tentatively call Odessa, it kind of became about her apathy. Um, and that sort of just was born out of the scenario that it started from. Like it started from a nugget of a story someone told me about their own life. And then from that, a character was extrapolated. And then from that character, I was like, well, what's, what's wrong with this character? What are they really being held up on? And I got into about like adolescent apathy. So I don't know that I could decide it before. It's kind of what I'm dancing around. Like I feel like that person needs to be like born into the world and then grow and develop. And then they'll have something interesting about them as opposed to I'm going to decide what I want to talk about and then write a character for it. Okay. 
I don't know, hmm. but maybe that maybe that is true. Maybe I should pick a thing and then write a character for it. I, it I don't know. It's just like a weird question I had. Like I was like, I wonder if. Well, I mean, I would still come down to the character, though, right? You'd still start with the character for first. It would just depend on where, like, what part of that character you were going to explore. It, it would definitely shorten my rewrite time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, about that part. Yeah, like it's it's massively inefficient. Yes, but I mean, at this point, we're, well, we're not talking about efficiency. We're just talking about like how you creatively think and process. Yeah, I think an important disclaimer is that this is all subject to change. Like. I mentioned in part one of this that I started in a business major when I came into college. I had no conception of the fact that I was going to be in video games, even though it should have been plainly fucking obvious to me because of my pastime and hobby throughout my entire life. Um, so, like, I'm only three years into this. And that's where I'm at now. But if you asked me this same question a year ago, that would have been crazy different. And right. I feel like that's going to line up with Mario as well. Yeah, I don't know if you want to jump to him I, next. Or... Yeah, that, I was actually going to jump in there for a second, Jake, because I was about to say, I, I mean, I'm the same about three years probably since probably since I made the arcade machine of where I really started to get like wheels turned on that. And like if you asked me a question a year ago about this or maybe a, even a year from now, the answer could change. But uh, I, I could start from the arcade machine as when I was uh, uh, Ryan's a good friend of me and Jake. And uh, he's the one who helped me with the arcade machine of programming like the Raspberry Pi to uh, run all the games on the arcade machine. And then I, I was working on building the base. So the the starting for that project of how that got started was we were looking around. Uh, Jake, where were you guys at at the time? Oh, we were living in uh, in Philadelphia. That's where it came to visit us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a so place. You guys were at place. And I had previously were looking into arcade machines and I, I saw one. Uh, on eBay for a Miss Pac-Man machine, it was like twelve hundred dollars. I'm like, oh man, that's kind of expensive, and that's only oh, Miss Pac-Man. My grandfather has one. Oh, <laughs> fully working arcade cabinet. I'm Could have really saved them a lot of time. Sorry, you know, really. yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not you. gonna give it. Oh. <laughs> um, I actually think my uncle has it now, but we have Miss Pac-Man, and we have like one that's like a 3D Tetris that you build upwards towards you. It's very weird. I don't remember oh, the name of that it. That sounds kind of cool. Sorry, continue. But no, you're fine. But, uh, so I was looking and I was like, oh man, that's kind of expensive. And then I looked at like arcade machines that, uh, other people had, had made and you can like buy online that were like three to four thousand dollars, like custom. Like, re- I mean, they were very nice and like, a bunch of games on them. I'm like, oh man, that's cool. But it was like also three to four thousand dollars. Like, ah. But without me going to visit Ryan and like me after seeing the arcade machines at the like the, the ground floor or like the lobby area. And like seeing them, I'm like, oh man, I kind of wanted to like build one or make my own or something like that. I was like, I'm really not sure. And then Ryan's like, oh, I always want to do a Raspberry Pi project. I probably put them on something like that. And I'm like, wow. I'm like, cool, let's do it. And then the, the, I think like two nights later, me and him were online just talking. We were looking at different like monitors and stuff to buy. And after, as soon as I, like we were talking about, I was like, as soon as I click buy on this monitor, <laughs> I it's a go and then I bought the monitor like I was I was getting shipped to my house and the Raspberry Pi was getting shipped to Ryan's house and he was working on it and then that's what started from there uh now more or less me starting a project uh it's I coming up with the idea so for the at least for the alien tank uh probably the, the newest thing I'm working on would be uh I just got some ideas up in my notebook and I think the the hardest part maybe for anybody is trying to you, you just got to get started at some point 
of like because I, I could design that thing all day and uh, draw a hundred different types of alien tanks i would want to try to make or concepts but if you don't actually get started and then in getting started figure out what you can do from there even maybe just with tools that you have on you or material you have on you uh to further complete the project itself but if you never get started you'll never get anything out of it so i think getting started is a major part of it and even uh going back to a predator desk that i made for my room i got halfway through and i realized the legs wouldn't have been as stable as i wanted to and the monitor would not have worked as well because it was way too big to have on the desk that i i decided to, to scrap the whole thing and then start again but I wouldn't have known that would have happened without getting started. So, so oh, sorry. I was going to say you have, from what I'm interpreting, correct me, obviously, if I am wrong, is that you have more of a hands-on approach, is that you have your initial plans that you get through, but you want to get your hands into it, start building it, see where problems arise, deal with them, innovate around them. Uh, but the important part is working with it and getting started on it. Yeah, yes, I no? would say okay. so. Yeah, okay. 100%. So, like, the conception of the idea happens after work has started, almost. Oh, uh, yeah, halfway. A lot of it, <laughs> as far as stuff in my room goes, I, I have a very crazy, like, <laughs> RGB, like, gamer trying to set up is what I go for in my room, at least. So, I, like, looked at what it first started as, and, like, even now, like, I'll find myself, like, I'll look at areas in my room and see how they can be approved upon. So I had this, like, rinky-dig shelf that I had in my room that held all my video games. And I saw the space it was in. I'm like, what can I build in that space to make it a lot cooler? And then it was, uh, like, a, the shape of an Xbox. Like, the original Xbox logo, kind of. But in the shape of an X to hold video games, if that makes any sense. Oh, I saw that on the Instagram link. Yeah. yeah. Which so we will it... somehow figure out to link either <laughs> in this announce, like podcast description or announcement. Gotcha. But yeah, it was like I was finding the space for what I wanted to build and then drawing that up and then taking it. And then I'm like, what if I had like giant buttons that would be on an Xbox controller and have that on there? Like, how do I make giant buttons? And I was trying to research that and it's like, how do I have the button stay in there? I'm like, I can put epoxy in there to hold the letters. And then I'm like, I need the letters. So I, I text Jake, you got back to me within a day, I believe. I'm like, I need the exact font. <laughs> I cannot find with a font the actual Xbox letters that are in the controller. I was like, can you please send me them? <laughs> he did very quickly, and I was able to get them on paper and trace them out onto acrylic and cut them out. But yeah, I think getting started is a is a big part of trying to further your creative process and getting something done at the end of it. I almost interpret. Also... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jake. Uh, I was just gonna say, like, you also kind of have to work into practical constraints too, because. Like, I'm looking at, actually, that Instagram post where you have, like, a, a collage of pictures leading up to the Xbox shelf, and the first edition of it didn't have the box in the middle. It was just the X, mm-hmm. and then it looks like you added that in there. And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is that for, like, structural support of the oh, shelves? Oh, the, the actual box around it? Yeah. So, no, I, I think it would have been totally fine standing upright without without the, the box. Um, there's actual pieces of wood are like added on later. Like I had the X before I had those little spots on the side. Oh, and, and it was freestanding without it. Yeah. So that was to hold, uh, the letter because the buttons, the buttons needed somewhere to go. Originally I had the buttons going on each corner of that. And then Ryan was taking a look at it. He was like, 
I don't know if that makes much sense because that's not how they're laid out on the controller. I'm like, ah, you're right. And I'm like, I could box out this area and kind of put the buttons in there. I'm like, that would make sense. But I'm like, what what would they do? And I'm like, that would give me an extra shelf above to put something onto. And also that would double as having a, a headset mount and controller mounts on the other side. I'd be able to put it on that flat part as well. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of added later. But I wouldn't have thought of that if I didn't pursue, like, after getting so far into my project, I could think and change and add that to it. Yeah. I Hi, Pat. Sorry, Kat. Um, I would almost... How I interpret yours is almost like a controlled chaos in a way, which are like two different things, but is that you have an idea and a vision that you are going for that keeps evolving and changing the more you work with it because you find more ways to improve it or build on it, or use the resources that you have left over, etc. Yes, no? Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, another part with that would be uh, uh, my friend Ashley, who's, we, we were working on the face hugger together. I had originally bought uh, as a, a life-size, like, Nika face hugger. And I the material, I don't think, would have held up inside of water. So I'm like, is there any way you can, like, cover this with, like, a type of paint that would be fine? And she came back to me with two ideas. of trying to do that. She wasn't sure if it would work too well. Or making a mold out of it and then molding that in silicone. And like, I, I never would have thought to mold the, the life size face hugger that I had instead of it being foam latex that probably would have been destroyed inside of water sitting there. Or to, to mold that and put into silicone. Like, I never even would have thought of that. So I, in that sense, it was kind of like, oh yeah, I found that out. Let's, let's go with that. Let's go forward pursuing that idea instead of just trying to fix the one that I already had. That brings up an interesting point about like how your creative community affects your process, but I want to hear about Amanda's process first. My process? I, I thought Mazio had something he was trying to chime Yeah, in I was with. trying to chime in, but I didn't want to like trample in. So it's kind of funny because um in a very, very real way you do physically you you implement physically the philosophy that I implement ethereally, right? Which is you look at a thing and like, how do I make this amusing and cool to myself, right? And then yeah, and then 100%. I'll worry what other people worry about later. Yes, exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's like I hope they think it's cool, but I I want this. That's totally with the alien tank. I think that there's yeah. like a a wild amount of like unpacking there for maybe another day. Where it's like <laughs> the two ends of the spectrum, right? The guy that chose not to go to college and the guy that took three master's degrees are like, yeah, so my philosophy. Philosophy a lot. I'm sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> and if it wasn't clear in the previous podcast, I don't regret any of my degrees. I think I got something out of all of them. But it's just this moment. I'm listening to you talk and I'm like, do I? I don't want to jump in because after I say this, I don't know what's going to happen to the conversation. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, that's real interesting. I was. I want to say it has to do with what we talked about in the previous podcast with a drive to do something where. What it sounds like, and again, Mario, please correct me if I am wrong, because again, I do not know you very well, um, that you look at something like what Mazio said, and you have a drive to improve it or make it cool or whatever. Mazio takes a look at some of the board games around him 
And he's like, uh, I'm going to make a board game that's fun and maybe not 50 hours to play or really complex that I could just sit down and play with friends, but I'll enjoy first. And goes with it. Yes? No? Yeah, no, maybe yeah, so. well, it's like, it's too different. I mean, my, I can't really enjoy, I mean, if I made it for myself, I can't really spread that out. I can show my friends. Right. I, I, get, I get what you're saying, though. Yeah, but I mean, you like you, you still post s- on Instagram. You still yeah, share I like try, your creations and, and yeah. And that's all. That's all relatively new at the start of COVID. I post nothing. I usually kind of hated social media. Rip. But, uh, <laughs> at first, at first, now I'm, I'm on it because I, I I've learned that it's not necessary, but I, I should be on there if that's how I want to further myself into making more things. And that I mean, I and. I, I I can't say I hate social media because I now love learning. Like I I watch tons of YouTube videos on how people make stuff, and I'm like, oh man, that's cool, and like I'm learning techniques and stuff like that. But yeah, it's definitely something I w- I would want to uh, build for myself and think it's cool. As as far as that aspect goes, did I, did I answer that correctly? I'm not sure. If I... Yeah. Wrong answer. You're done. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I'm Excommunicated. Oh. Off the <laughs> Rip. <laughs> Mazio, any closing? No. Follow up thoughts? No, not 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 at the moment. I'm gonna hold. I'm gonna hold off. Oh boy. Um, I guess then to go back to Jake's question about my process, uh, I feel like I have two parts of me that are constantly at war with one another and neither can agree on which way is right because I have my creative experience which is more of my dungeon master and game master mindset where I like to build a world first and then I like to populate and make the world intriguing and then I like to unleash players in it to pick and choose what story they want to create or uncover on their own and then I have my programmatic mind <laughs> that develops and codes uh, that is very much like, yeah, that's not going to work. How are you going to code that? All those systems will fail. What are you going to do? You can't code that. That's impossible. You can't code infinite choices. Um, or it'll be like, ah, but this mechanic could be really fun and satisfying to them. So if you figure out the loop that is satisfying enough to keep them coming back then you could make small adjustments to that. You know it's easy to program. You could do it that way. Let's start with that, and then let's figure out the creative bits later. So both ways, I guess, um, really depends on the project um, and really depends on which side of the brain wins, if that makes sense. No, it does. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah, I would say that makes totally. sense for sure. Um. Because, think, go ahead, Jake. No, go ahead. No, no, finish your thought. Uh, because how I tackle DMing or GMing or keeper, whatever you want to call it, running a tabletop RPG is very different than how I approach any of the games or projects that I make, even though it's still a project that requires a lot of effort to put together. And it's two separate lenses that I look at them. Uh, that battle each other when we get into RPG video games. Yeah. So that's all. So I have. go ahead, Jake. I was just gonna ask. So it's a battle, right? Of 
the the creative versus the practical, which I totally get. There's a ton of stuff I'd like to make that I, you know, have to basically beat myself with a copy of the hero's journey and say no. <laughs> um, so like He's being metaphorical, I've never actually struck Jake. I want that legally on the record. <laughs> uh, no, never, never been physically assaulted. Um, but yeah, like I've had issues where one wins and then I have to like backtrack. Have you ever had that happen where like one side is trampled over the other and like kind of muddied the process? Not really. There's times where I have been forced to use one or the other, even though I really think both should have had the say in the matter. Like, for example, senior project. Um, I really think I should have used both elements. I should have taken a look at what is creative and fun for the game, but also how can we accomplish this and everything we're asking to accomplish within the nine week, whatever, how many weeks senior project was. Um, thank you. Right. 30 weeks. <laughs> it was three quarters. <laughs> 10 weeks. That makes sense. 30. All right. Yeah. Um, how can we accomplish in that time? And can we do it efficiently? Uh, and in that project, I was forced to think just with the creative side and I could not voice the opinions of the other side, which led to a whole lot of frustration, as you can attest to. Um, I don't think either one tramples the other out because I am a firm believer that all sides, not all sides, but I guess both sides have to be considered to complete the project. I, Whenever I go to set out to code something, I still have to consider if I'm making a tool, someone with my level of knowledge on that tool isn't going to be using it. An artist may be using it. So how I'd have to approach that tool from both a programmatic standpoint, but also how do I make this creative enough that the other person will understand it and I'm not just vomiting code out to them. Right? Does that, does that help explain my Definitely. jumbled yeah. mind? Yeah. Um, or if an artist gives me um, a model and they say that I need this model to animate in this precise way, but it's a short enough animation that you can programmatically do it. Well, then in that case, I am both trying to figure out the curve that I want this thing to animate on mathematically and the time and the numbers for it and the formula and what gets triggered from it and when it ends and how the cleanup handles it from a programmatic side, but from an art side, I'm still looking at it and I'm being like, yeah, it can't really be a perfect curve because that looks unnatural. So we're going to have to make some adjustments there to the programming. And I know it may fuddle up the formula a little bit, but from an art side, that looks better. If that also helps explain my so, mess of a brain. So in a way, like game design is the perfect thing for you, right? I because really, it's that marriage between like art and code. Yeah. Like I really enjoy working on projects, on game projects where I can have a 
finger in every pie. Is that the saying? A hand in every bucket. A finger, it's finger in every pie. Now. Thank you. Um, because I really loved all aspects of the game development, and I always, I really like to figure out how things work. Like, I was the kid who wanted to go up to train conductors and ask them what each button on the train conducting panel did, but I couldn't because you can't disrupt the train conductor because you endanger the safety of everyone else. Um, But I was also the kid that likes to look at art and try and figure out, like, the purpose or the intent behind it, or, like, what does that make you feel like, or why is this moving, or important to so many people what's the meaning behind it or what is fun how do we quantify fun um what made this fun what made people smile so i don't know if that answered your question jake again my brain's a little jumbled week 17 definitely i i think it's good to have that like kind of that fight in between because it's what you can do with you right now and what like how can i make this the best that i can make it with the tools that i currently have and that's good because if if you go off on something that is almost impossible for you to do right now, you'll you'll never get finished, and you just be chasing something that you, you can't really do. But I, I think it's also uh, important to not maybe not forget that idea either. You always kind of keep it in your back pocket because I mean I I want to make a, a master chief in a cryo tube like at the end of Halo Three. I was like sitting there. Like, I want to make a full cryo tube with, like, steam inside and Master Chief just in there. And I want that to be in my man cave when I get older in my house. Like, that, that is my plan to have something in that that I build. There's no way I could do that right now. One, I don't have the space. I don't, I don't think I have the tools and skills required. But that doesn't mean I, I still don't want to do it. Right. But. Uh, it's definitely a blessing and a curse. Uh, I feel like the creative side has a lot of things it really wishes to do and accomplish and it has games it wants to make to make people smile or laugh or understand this concept you're trying to get across but the programmatic side is very much like you don't have the tools right now to do that i have a question yes does the counterbalancing between those two sides prevent you from completing things yeah, that's that's what I, yeah, it's like it's a blessing and a curse. It's where I have this grand idea I would like to do and I really want to do it, but it's hard when another part of your brain is like, well, you can, you don't have the knowledge to do this right now. So why why waste your time doing it? Why start it if you're never going to finish on time? Right? And that's that is very much a program like logic side of things is you have limited time left. You have to maximize the efficiency of your time doing it. Why would you spend it on a project where you know currently right now you don't have the means to finish it? Whereas the creative side is like, yes, but we could attempt it and maybe learn something along the way. And the programmatic side is like, no, that is not an efficient use of your time right now. So it's definitely it's a blessing in some situations and it's a it's a curse in others. Does that answer your question? It, it does. I think I think I have follow-ups to it, but I don't know if they're relevant to the podcast. Um, in terms of, like, how do you know when to turn one side off because you've gone as far as you're going to go with it on a particular project? 
I don't think I can actually like fully turn one off if that makes sense. I think there will come there will hit a point where the uh, the two sides are feuding so much that you just don't want to work on the project anymore because it hurts and you get a headache from it as you try and unravel this mess that's sitting in front of you. Uh, and then you stop. Or both sides are like, we, we just can't. Like, it's been too long and you've lost that drive for this project and that's the point in time where you, you just need to stop from the creative side and the mathematical side or the programmatic side is more like, you've done all you can do. So stop. Okay. But it usually ends with me having a headache and me being like, all right, we're not going to get anywhere with this because you're fighting with yourself constantly over it. Or both sides have agreed that you've been this to death and fought through this argument so much that you've just lost the drive to do it. So we'll table that. We'll take some time away from it. We'll maybe think about it in the back, like shower thoughts or 3 a.m. thoughts when you're about to fall asleep and your brain's like, wait, I solved it. Mm. Um. But it's it it's one of those two things that you're usually like, all right, I'm going to put this project to the side, or it's done. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Learning some insights. Some insight into how Amanda's brain works. The constant so, turmoil. I'd like to pose a question to the group. Please do. What do we think the common thread is? Because we come from super varied backgrounds. Probably Amanda and us having the most, or Amanda and myself having the most similar background. But like, we all have wildly different processes. So how do we connect that? Because we're all kind of in the same headspace, I right? I don't know that the point is to connect it. I, I think that the idea is that, I think the point of it is that you can share a headspace and a community and still have this insanely individualistic component to this part of your life like for to i, I want to give you like an, an absolutely bizarre example of like a, a part of my my actual process and i think we should probably go into like process in depth in a different in a different podcast but like if i'm going to write uh if i have to write a scene for whether it's a script or a novel or video whatever doesn't matter um <clears throat> and I'm, I'm sitting across, I'm in a writer session with somebody, and this happens very frequently with a novelist friend of mine, and um, I'll sit down, like, alright, I'm gonna watch this three-minute YouTube video, and I'll watch this video, and previously this person would, like, really goad me along, and then they figured out that, like, I'm not really watching the video, I'm using the video as static to meditate on the process I'm about to write, and then I'll go off and I'll write for, like, potentially hours in one fervor. Uh, I think the most I've ever done is like 6,500 words in a sitting. It, it is that that thing where functionally somewhere in all of this, all of these methodologies allow for the organization of thought to coalesce. Right? And in that moment, it all sort of snaps together. And the skill that's applied is the ability to capitalize on that mental uh, mental springboard and take it forward in any given particular art form. 
which is why I find Amanda's commentary so interesting and also knowing a little bit about some of the projects that she's worked on or has worked on um, and looking at it and going like, well, that explains some of your problems, right? Yeah. If you can't, when I, when I said, can you, can you turn it off? Right. Or like when I, when I asked Jake about, when I asked Jake specifically about his, his thing and it's like, there's a fluid concept to the, to the philosophy that Mary and I share that is that mo- that counterbalance, that give and take has been stripped out of it because the actual work itself is not the guiding principle pushing the process forward. I know when to cut a chapter out of a novel if I reread it and I don't think it's funny or interesting or amusing. And I don't necessarily know what to put in there. Like, I, I may I may need to restructure the entire plot, or I may just need to rewrite it. But typically, what's revealed to me is either, well, I didn't do a good job writing it, and I need to rewrite it, or actually, no, that beat doesn't work. Or that series of beats doesn't work. And that's why I'm sitting here trying to reflect on very quickly in the moment, and that's not necessarily going to work, where it's like, oh, if you're moving through... If you're moving through your process using using genre, in Jake's case, or you're moving through your process using mental modes, in Amanda's case, how much how much energy that could be going into the work in any given session is actually being mentally exerted in that in a unproductive or less than productive way? versus like a meditative quality inside the process. And I know that's not really what we're talking about today, but that's where I'm like that's where I'm stalled at the moment. Does that is that interesting? I think that's exactly what we're talking about. I don't think that diverges. Yeah, I don't think it does either. Um but I wait, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you take it, Mario. I, I think that and I, I get what you mean where it's it's separate by everyone we all have our different ways to go about it. But I, I think Going back to Jake's point, I think there is a, a commonality to the point where maybe people who want to create and do these things where that's all you can think about in, in a sense of like me. I even I go to work and stuff like that and I see uh, foremen I work with like they'll they'll take that home and they'll think about the job and stuff like that. And man, I do not want to do that at all. I'm even at work. Sometimes I'm thinking about what I'm going to do. or Man, I hope my 3D prints OK while I'm at home is it's all I want to do it is all I think about. And I think that, that could kind of line up with all of us, even though we could do totally different things and the way we go about them is totally different. But I think it all connect and say that we could all that's that's what drives us to create what we want to create is that we like what else would we want to do besides if there is something you would want to do, then maybe you shouldn't be trying to or it's maybe it's just a hobby or something like that versus something that you definitely want to go into and jump into. I definitely I think that that's the best advice the ever. thing that connects everybody but kind of back to Mazur's point there very much is two distinct camps like in this discussion right and it's almost like an emotional investment in the specific work as opposed to an emotional investment in the overall philosophy right or I agreed own? I just thought there was more to it yeah which side being which well, well, us, me and you, Amanda, being the emotional investment in this specific work, and Mario and uh, Mazio being in the philosophy behind it. 
At least that's the way I saw it. And I don't know that one is necessarily right or wrong. I think specifically with my example, it does lead to that sort of unproductive mental energy spent sometimes because you have to go back and rewrite and do a bunch of stuff to get in the proper headspace as opposed to being committed to one thing and then applying that thing to multiple genres. But I definitely think that there might be an advantage over the other one where I, I think there might be... So if you're if you're committed to your philosophy and not necessarily committed to the specific work and the work is not driving the process, the philosophy is driving the process, would you run into a situation where if you worked in the same genre twice, you would make the same thing? Ooh. Hmm. Oh, indeed. And I don't mean to be like offensive or dickish in any way. No, That's actually, just like re- a, gen- it, actually. a genuine question. Okay. So if you're invested in the overall philosophy and that philosophy guides the work as opposed to the work guiding your philosophy and driving your process, do you think that if you worked in the same genre twice, like in the same medium with a similar setup, that you would make the same work? Since this specific work is not driving the process, a more fundamental thing is driving the process. I don't know that you would make the same work, but I think you would make very similar decisions based off of secondary aspects. So, like, when if I'm translating, like, a novel to a game or even a screenplay, right, I'm going to go, my thing is touch, how does this feel, Right. I'm going to make decisions that alter maybe the text itself, but try to maintain the feel. Right? Versus trying to maintain the mechanics between, like, a board game and a video game. I think it almost builds his own style. Like, for example, definitely, whenever Nintendo presents a Mario game, you know that Mario game, they are going to make the same choices they, they've made in previous Mario games and then add some twists to them. But there are core fundamental decisions they make to it. And it's maybe Mario's a bad example, but they feel like different games. Like Galaxy, Mario Galaxy, still feels like a Mario game, but it's definitely not the same game as Super Mario World. But it still feels like it came from the same team and the same thought process behind it. So in a way, it's kind of the difference between, um, oh God, I had his name, Kojima and um, like Shigeru Miyamoto, Mario creator. Because Kojima is a madman that will do crazy different things every single time. And it definitely hampers his process. I mean, at least from the outside. It seems that way. Death Stranding. I Need I say anymore? No. But where, it, to make a reference kind of to music, like, Miyamoto is just jamming in C. Like, and really good at it. Like, C major pentatonic, he's hitting everything. He's got the best licks. Whereas, Kojima is switching keys on the fly. And it sometimes sounds terrible and sometimes strikes but, brilliance and so, but it's it's very inconsistent yeah. as opposed to a consistent like you know gcd and i know that might not make any sense i don't think any of you guys actually are, like, it makes a ton of sense people. because what it you're, does what you're looking for is kojima's trying to find 
genius through adaptation where Miyamoto is trying to find perfection. Yes. Ge- well, absolutely. let me rephrase that. Genius through perfection. Yes. It's this, it's at they're both pointed at the same goal and one of them is driving a car on an asphalt road and the other one is riding a dirt bike over a mountain. You know what's really funny from an authorial standpoint? John Updike is sure. somebody who always said he wrote to perfect the written word, right? And Sure. Don't know that person. John Updike? Yeah. Oh, that's a, we'll have a conversation about that later. Names. Don't worry about it. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have George R. R. Martin, who is literally is seeking it? perfection through experimentation with completely checkered results. Like I don't yes. think I don't think many scenes in literature have affected me as much as the Red Wedding has. Laura, I was shaking with rage, like rage at Rob's stupidity, rage at everything that happened. I didn't read the book, but and I can't because I can't read the books, knowing that he'll never finish them. I just can't put myself through that. But I will admit the TV show adaptation, I was also infuriated. Mm. But I don't know how close that is to the book. I mean, it's impossible for me to tell because, like, that level of emotion can't be resummoned for the same story in my, for me. True, right. Yeah. I I would, I mean, having only experienced the TV, based on how I've heard people speak of the books, it's a very different situation. Um, And some of that is definitely, like, the technical aspect of just martin's mastery of not mastery i don't know what you call it but at least skill in the use of the english language you want to quote like that is not necessarily translated into i think you could quote cohen right the baffled king composing hallelujah (laughs) oh my gosh Ooh, too close to home (laughs) yeah Jake, I, I think you almost answered your own question when you were talking. Uh, I'm sorry, who's the guy who made Mario? I should know that. <laughs> Me and Mario. Uh, well, if you, I mean, if you said he was jamming in C, if that's the case, then I I don't think you can be jamming on that C chord if you're creating the same. It, that just seems like you're strumming. Like the, oh, I might be, I might be saying this wrong, but if you're scale, but yeah, yeah, if you're if you're jamming, that just means you're improving on it. So I mean, I think you're taking everything you learned from what have you created and then. Even if it's similar, flushing that out, uh, just better and better, and still, I mean, still, you can't ship the same thing over and over again. I expect people to like Pokemon begs to differ. I, yeah, <laughs> Mario sorry. also kind of begs to oh, differ. Sorry, well, this yeah, is salt <laughs> right there. Uh, well, Maybe. in the theme of this podcast, Zelda begs to differ. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and the new one. Oh, just, just leave it. it. I don't want to listen. Listen to the Breath of the Wild <laughs> podcast. We did. Oh, let's not go down that road. But I think. More to your, not to step on your line, but I think the thing that you're dancing around is the difference between the idea of creativity and artistic achievement coming from the confluence of two points, like the intersection of different disciplines or the mastery of one. And I'm a big believer in the intersection just because I've done it and I've seen it with transitioning from business to art, but I don't think that one is right and one is wrong. I don't think there can be. A right and wrong. I think right and wrong in this case is whether or not the work is successful. Yeah, but even then, like we're even done too, almost. (laughs) Yeah, book four of Song of Ice and Fire. (laughs) It's done. (laughs) Never speak of it again. (laughs) But 
And it, but Jake also touched on that when he said there is very inconsistent results when you use that methodology. So I don't know if whether or not it's done and successful is a good measurement or it's done and you obtained something from it. It's it's kind of like debating the artistic quality of Van Gogh versus Monet. Like to dive into painters, that might be a bad example. But the insanity and the investment in the work driving it and like the intersection of the skill as a painter and the complete insane ridiculous nature that he that was Van Gogh versus like a expertly trained painter I think you know what you know who's a better example Rembrandt who's like doing commissioned works yeah Rembrandt's honestly the example I was reaching for more so than Monet but I don't know. I think that's kind of as deep as I can go with that thought uh, that I've identified that there's two camps and I don't know what the right one is, but I can tell you firmly which but one I, I'm at. I don't know. That, I don't think there is a right or wrong. But I, I, I also think, those think are bad that words to use. I also think that we're hitting the intellectual, the temporary intellectual barrier of we've taken in a lot of data and we want to process it. And then there's also this yeah. moment of and I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've figured this out, uh, where it's like, we, we have questions for each other that we're not totally sure are okay to bring up on the podcast. <laughs> the podcast. That, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. after discussion that. about what it, it, like, like, hey, I wanted to say this, but I wasn't sure that you want, like, I wasn't confident that I wouldn't be, like, throwing you into a wolf, you know, a wolf den when I did it. I feel like Matthew's going to chuck me into a wolf den after this podcast now. A Garrick-flavored wolf den. Oh, no. <laughs> also, we're getting to the point where the Bud Light strawberry is forcing me to have oh, to again. Why would you even talk about that? <laughs> I don't you um, dare hate plus on my strawberry. Plus, we're at an hour mark, and I think this was a fruitful discussion. I feel like we set out to talk about the differences, and well, not even differences, set out to talk about our creative processes, and I think we did. I think we came to some good thought lines. I don't want to say conclusions, but like trains of thought to branch off of from here. Yeah, um, I, I agree. Right? Yeah, I, sure. I think we um, just kind we, of defined what we want to do with this podcast in like a very literal way. <laughs> like true. the theory portion of it, I mean. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and at least the perspectives that we're going to be bringing to this. Um, so we do not forget Mario, plug yourself. Oh, as far as like where where I am. In yeah, where can people yeah. follow you? Uh, so you can find me at Wired Workshop on Instagram, and uh, you'll see all my projects I have there. I plan on doing a YouTube. Uh, not plan. I'll take that back. I am going to start a YouTube channel, uh, going over my projects and how I go about them, and hopefully you guys find that interesting and the uh, the projects I create and the process I go about. That's at Wired underscore Workshop. Thank you, Jake. You guys can follow the rest of us at the usual places, which again, really dropped the bomb and not the last podcast, but the one before the last podcast where like we ended with Jake screaming because an alien was emerging from his chest made out of Cheetos and milk. That was, that was I put sorry. in my tank. <laughs> that then Mario was brought on the podcast because he put in his new tank <laughs> that he's building. Speaking of which, we're going to end on a similar note in about nope. two seconds. Oh. Okay. I'm exploding with some unnamed seltzer. Here it comes. All right, Jake, pause. Oh. Jake, Jake, oh. Jake, stop. Oh. Jake. <laughs>